we heard earlier. Thank you guys for leading us in our singing and reading the passage. It's cool to read in the New Testament and recognize with a little background study, which I would encourage us all to be involved in, to see the connection between these churches, to see the relationship between some of these congregations that without this study, we wouldn't recognize there's a there's a connecting point. There's a relationship there Uh, earlier in the passage and earlier in the morning. And I'll refer to it. J.T. read out of Colossians chapter one. Well, there's a tight connection between the church at Colossae and the church at Laodicea that we're reading about here. And if you read the book of Colossians, you see in there three or four references to the church at Laodicea and to the Laodiceans. And one of the things that you see as you read Colossians and in chapter two and verse one, Paul expresses his concern for that church and the and just the, the weightiness that he feels for the well-being of that church. He says, I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for the church at Laodicea. So Paul has this burden for these churches. And so I believe that a man named Epaphras, who is also referenced in the book of Colossians, is the man who went and evangelized there in Laodicea. And the church was planted out of the church at Colossae. And so they had heard, because at the end of the book of Colossians, Paul tells them, read this letter to the Laodiceans. And he also says, read the letter that they have there in Colossae. So there's a connecting point there. And they had heard the book of Colossians read. They had heard that letter read to them there in that church. So there's this spiritual root there. There's a, an understanding, if you will, a really clear picture of the gospel given there. And yet, these years later, following that, we come to what is the hardest word from Christ that we read in the book of Revelation. Um, this, this seventh letter to the church at Colossa, to the church there in Laodicea, um, should cause us, even here in Roxbury, even here at Westwood, um, a great deal of fear, a great deal of just asking God to show us what's going on in our lives and in our fellowship. Here's the deal. If Jesus is who he says he is, if he is who Paul said that he was, as Jonathan read that earlier, the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, that by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible. He's given dominion over everything. He's before all things and he holds all things together. In him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. If this is who Jesus is, and it is, then the greatest danger we face as individuals and as a church is to just treat that lightheartedly. To, to treat him as casual and just to be lukewarm in a relationship with him. There's no place for complacency with this, with this picture of Jesus that we have here. And, and his words are, uh, God, that is nasty. Lord, have mercy. And it's not just because it's JT's coffee, okay? <laughs> No, I don't need, ugh. That is not, it's, it's not hot. And it's not iced, and I like iced coffee. This stuff will make you throw up if you drank too much of it. 
And that's what Jesus says to us. If you respond to me just lukewarm, take me casually, brush me off, you make me want to vomit. I will spit you out of my mouth. There's no way to dress this up. There's no way to soften what Christ is saying here. And I believe what he's saying to his church, to believers. And so these hard words that come from Christ are not any words that any of us would want to hear. Really, I mean, if it doesn't in some way cause our hearts a little bit of fear and trembling to hear Jesus say this to a church, then I'll have a word for you later on, but you need Jesus in your life. All right? It's the unsaved. It's those who have never responded to Christ that are untouched, if you will, by his word. That is not a mark of those who belong to him. And so as, as we read this, we read about a church who was... And a city, the city was infamous, if you will, for its nasty drinking water. It was wealthy. It was a center of banking and medicine and textiles. God, it sounds like Person County in some ways. And yet it was known for its bad water. And so there's a real connection here culturally there. And this, this, this city and this church, they were satisfied, they were comfortable, and they were complacent. And Jesus would have none of it. John Stott said... Perhaps none of the seven letters is more appropriate to the 21st century church than this one. He said, it describes vividly the respectable, sentimental, nominal, skin-deep religiosity, which is so widespread among us today. Our Christianity, Stott said, is flabby and anemic. We appear to have taken a lukewarm bath in religion. Jesus will have none of it. He'll have none of it. So let's, let's just jump right into this, okay? To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the, true and faithful, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. Like all of the seven letters, this last one begins with a picture of Jesus. Jesus is, is declaring himself and describing himself to this church at Laodicea. And notice what he says. He describes himself first as the Amen. And, and the amen is, is, we hear it sometimes in our service. You might hear it more in other churches than you do here. Do here. You might not have been in a church where you hear it all other than the end of a prayer where it's kind of the perfunctory, okay, I'm finished praying, amen. And that's how we end our prayers. But, but the word has meaning. There's, there's something behind it. In Isaiah 65, 16, this is how the prophet describes God himself. He said, he who is blessed in the earth shall be blessed by the God of amen. In the Hebrew language, the word amen equates truth. Now, ESV and NIV and some of the modern translations would translate Isaiah 65, 16 as the God of truth. But when you hear in the Old Testament God declaring something and the people going, amen, amen, they are saying truth, truth, true that, true that. That's what they're saying. And we see it repeatedly in the book of Revelation. We saw it earlier in chapter one. He who is coming with the clouds, every eye will see him. Those who have pierced him and all the peoples of the earth will mourn because of him. That's the revelation. John then says, so shall it be. Amen. John amens that revelation that he got. Revelation 22. He who testifies these things says, this is Jesus talking. Yes, I'm coming soon. John replies, 
Yea, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And then the very last word in Revelation, the very last word in the whole New Testament is amen. That's, that's how the Bible ends, okay? The grace of the Lord Jesus be with God's people. Amen. So Jesus saying he is the amen, he is saying he is God's truth. He is the culmination of everything that God has said. First Corinthians one twenty, Paul says that all the promises of God are yes. The, the old King James says yea and amen in him. All right. Jesus is the is the exclamation point, the amen in all of God's promises. This is the one speaking to the truth, speaking to the church. He said, I am the amen. All right. I am God's truth. And then it says he is faithful and true. That's how he describes himself. Everything he says is true. We've already talked about this. Two other places he describes himself that way, right? I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. If he is the truth, then everything he says is the truth, right? And he is faithful. The writer of Hebrews tells us that unlike Moses, but yet like Moses. He says Moses was faithful in the house, if you will, as a servant in Hebrews 3. But he says Jesus is faithful over the house as a son. So he is faithful to God in every way. But he is also faithful to us. Hebrews 2 says he is a merciful and faithful high priest. So Jesus is faithful and true. We can, we can trust him. Later on in Revelation, I'm going to refer to this in a minute. This one who is faithful and true and stands at the door and knocks, just waiting for us to answer is the one faithful and true riding on a white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth where he is ready to crush his enemies in judgment. He is faithful and true. That is who he is. And it says he is the beginning of God's creation. What does that mean? Well, first, what does it not mean? And what it does not mean is what our friends and neighbors who come knock on our door passing out watchtower material will tell us it means. A quote from one of their documents. This is from the Watchtower Society. You don't need to be mean, but you do not need to welcome them in, and you do not need to give them money for the material that they're passing around. All right? It is, it is, it is untrue, and it is unsafe to believe that. They believe that Christ was the first created being of Jehovah God. He was the first created spiritual being out of many created spiritual beings. And I quote, this means that he was created before all other spirit sons, small s, spirit sons of God, and that he is the only true one who was direct, directly created by God. It's not new. It's the old Arian, Arian teaching that there was a time when Jesus was not. That's the bottom line. There was a time when he was not. But that's not what the Bible teaches. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him, and without Him was not anything made that has been made, John says in John 1. So He is not created in the sense of being the first one made. He is the firstborn from the dead in that He is the first one preeminent, if you will, first in priority, of a new creation that God is making from those who have been resurrected and raised up. That's what we see unfolding in the book of Revelation. He is not the first one of God's that God made. He is the prototype of the ones that God is remaking, recreating, 
through the resurrection and through the new life that comes in Christ. That's the picture. Now, let me just give you a quick point of application, and I'm going to touch on this again at the end. Only when we see Jesus for who he really is will we have a defense against being lukewarm and complacent. We have to see him for who he is before we can hear what he says. And then when we see him and hear him as who he is, God's amen, faithful and true. As we see him as this one whom God has given as a substitute. And, and that's the whole picture. When we see Jesus like this, here's what's going to happen, church. It's going to crush us. We're going to humble ourselves before him. And then the one who is the amen promise to all of God's promises, promises to lift us up. Because God opposes the proud, James says, but gives grace to the humble. And he says in the book of Isaiah, this is the one I esteem in Isaiah 66 too, The one who is humble and contrite and trembles at my word. Peter fell on his knees when Jesus spoke a word to silence the storm around him. And we ought to respond the same way when we hear the word of Jesus spoken through his word like this. That's, that's his revelation of himself. Now, what does he say about the city? Well, nothing is said directly about Laodicea. He just says to the angel of the church at Laodicea. But again, we need to know a little bit about the context of this city, I believe, to understand the context of what's being said to the church there. And here's the issue. The church looked like the city. The church looked like the city. The city was known for really four things, three of them really good, one of them not so good. The bad thing was the water, okay? We'll talk about that in a second. They were known for their wealth. The city of Laodicea set at a crossroads, and it was simply by nature where it was sitting there, a center of wealth, a center of commerce. It was a banking banking community, a banking capital. Earlier, when an earthquake had destroyed many of these cities that we read about in the book of Revelation, Laodicea was the one city that when Rome offered to come in and rebuild their city, they said, Aunt, we're good. We'll take care of it ourselves. They rebuilt their own city. They didn't need Rome to help them. So they're very proud and they're very, very centered on what they were able to do. They're known for their wealth. They're known for their wool. And I've read different things in studying for this. And, and, and I'm not real clear as to exactly how they manufactured it or what was done. But Laodicea was known for a really soft, high-quality black wool. And it was woven into rugs, and it was woven into clothing, and it was really expensive. So they're known for their wealth, they're known for their textiles, they're known for their wool, and they're known for their medicine. It was the city of medicine. It was a big temple to the god of medicine there. But for real, they were known specifically for the ability that they had to make an eye ointment, a salve, that went on people's eyes, and it was, it was sent out all over the Roman world. People would come to Laodicea to seek healing for their eyes, or that medicine would be sent out to them. So it was known for their wealth, for their wool, and for their medicine, specifically their eye salve. And this church that was in this proud, wealthy, well-to-do city, this city that was proud of its health and proud of its ability to do things, it reminds me so much... For the last hundred years, and no one can argue this, every, every economist would agree, there has been no nation on the face of the earth as wealthy as America for the last hundred years. Our gross national product dwarfs, historically, every other nation in the world. We are a wealthy country. 
And you've heard some of us say it before, but if you go to other countries, if you travel to third world countries, if you go to the highlands of the Altiplano in Bolivia, or if you go to the jungles of Peru, or if you go out into the, to the desert areas of Afghanistan, you will see that those there who are struggling and those who are wealthy still don't have the level of income you have if you are getting a government check every month. I mean, we are a wealthy country. And that has worked its way into the life of the church. And one of the things we're going to see is that that church in Laodicea was wealthy, they were well-dressed, they were healthy, and they turned the stomach of Christ. Because they took pride in those things. They felt strong because of those things. They were comfortable because of those things. And all throughout the rest of the book of Revelation, we're going to see, and this is, we need to kind of be careful here, understand this, the words for rich and wealthy are going to be used all the way through the rest of Revelation for a picture of worldly power and rebellion against God, for a picture of self-sufficiency instead of humble calling out to Christ. It's going to be seen. Later on, those who, those who have... Sexual relationships with Babylon, the great whore is what they'll be, she'll be called in the book of Revelation, or those who have capitulated to the, to the business model of the world and gotten wealthy from it. And that's going to be that contrast all the way through the rest of the book of Revelation. Now, truly, income and wealth are a picture of blessing in the Bible. But we always have to work to balance that, do we not? With what Jesus says at the beginning of the Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are spiritually bankrupt and know it, because theirs is the kingdom of heaven, he says. So that was the city that had worked its way into this complacent, good-for-nothing church. And notice what Jesus says, I know your works. I know you're neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. So what had happened in Laodicea is what happens so often. And I like to use this illustration. Instead of the church becoming the thermostat that regulated the climate, it was the thermometer that simply reflected the spiritual temperature of the city. See, the church ought to be a impacting the spiritual climate. But Laodicea was not. They just reflected what was going on in the community. Wealth, comfort, well-to-do, very sufficient. And all throughout the letters, we've seen this in Ephesus, we've seen it in Pergamum, we saw it in Thyatira and in Sardis. There's danger in Roxborough. There's danger to the American church of compromising with the culture around us, reflecting that culture and being complacent. And when we are that, we are worthless. We're, we're not good for anything. Now, some say, when Jesus says you're neither hot nor cold, some equate this picture of hot with vitality and with life, and that's true. We see that in the Scripture. But then they use the opposite and say that this picture of coldness is this picture of spiritual deadness, if you will, or being lost out, outside of Christ completely. It's a picture then of, of being in Christ and saved or out of Christ and lost. And, and truly, Paul says, we are dead in our trespasses and sins. So the person outside of Christ is stone cold dead. That's true. 
And I think that within the context, as we see here, while you could take that in some direction, I think we'll see later on in the passage what Jesus is saying to these people. He's saying to a church. And now John MacArthur goes so far as to say he doesn't believe there's a single saved person in this church. He doesn't believe there's anybody in this church that's born again. Here's, here's one thing that he says that I think is true. He says, smug, self-righteous hypocrites are far more difficult to reach with the gospel than cold-hearted rejectors. The rejectors may at least be shown that they are lost. But those who are self-righteously thinking that they are saved are protective of their religious feelings and unwilling to recognize their real conditions. He says they're not cold enough to feel the bitter sting of sin. So consequently, no one is further from the truth than the one who makes an idle profession of Christ, but never experiences genuine saving faith. No one is harder to reach, he says, than a false Christian. You can picture that in the Pharisees response to Jesus. They had religion. They had just enough religion to inoculate them to the gospel. I had an old Greek, I had an old professor at Southwestern, he didn't teach Greek, he, he did teach Greek, but he taught New Testament, I took him for the book of Romans, Dr. McClellan, Scottish guy, and it was, I just loved him, I loved his teaching, but he told the story of his son, his son had grown up in church, his son had grown up the son of a pastor, he had heard the gospel a million times, and he ultimately rejected Christ. And, and the professor would just stand in front of our class weeping, but he, because he said, my son had calluses on his heart. The harder, the harder his heart got, the harder it was. And ultimately, it seems he died lost because there were calluses. There were, he'd heard it so many times, and it had never penetrated, and soon it couldn't penetrate. So in one sense, it, it could be said that it is better to try to reach a lost person. I was talking with a pastor up in the mountains a couple of weeks ago. We were talking about a situation with an individual. And he said, you know, he's a, lot of, he's a whole lot like a lot of these boys up here in the mountains. He has a profession, but he does not have a possession. A profession, but not a possession. Now, I'm not convinced that that's exactly what Jesus is saying when he said, I would rather you be cold. I don't, I don't think Christ is saying, I'd rather you be cold and opposed to me than warm and with me. But I will say that there is some spiritual truth that it's easier to reach the lost person who knows they're lost than the churched person who thinks they know Christ but don't. There is truth in that. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, is not that I'd rather you be cold and lost I think, again, the picture of the water, and there are guys who would disagree with me on this, and I understand that. But you had one city not far from Laodicea called Herapolis, which had hot springs that were known for their medicinal benefits. Then in Colossae, it was known for its cold water, the cold springs that came out of the ground, and it was refreshing. So in one sense, there's this there's medicinal healing that comes through the heat and there's refreshment that comes through the cold. And I think what Jesus is saying here is, is you're not helping anybody. There's no heat that will heal. There's no refreshment that will comfort. You're lukewarm. I'm going to spit you out. You're worthless to me. I spew you out. And literally the word means to vomit you. He, he says you're 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 tepid. You're lukewarm. You're, you're not clean. You're not helpful. You're not healthy. And there's, there's no life-changing power of the gospel that's being manifested there. And you know what the real problem is? 
is they don't see it. They don't recognize it. They don't know it. The real danger of their condition is that they don't know it. Notice what he says. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Wow. Jesus says, let me tell you what I see. I know your works. All right. Again, he knows. We've seen that over and over here. And their self-assessment of themselves is wrong. Our heart is desperately wicked. And we can convince ourselves of so much. If all we're doing is assessing ourselves based on how we measure up to those around us, or how we measure up to this, this God that we've created, that we've put before us as a model. And so their biggest problem is that these things are going on and that they evaluate themselves, if they do, and they don't see it. They, they've missed this completely. That's not me. I'm fine. We're good. I'm good. They're comfortable. They're complacent. They're compromising. We've seen that throughout this letters. And they could not be more wrong about themselves. And notice what Jesus says. You say that I'm rich prosperous and I don't need anything and their wealth had made them complacent their wealth had given them comfort he said you think you're well off but you're wretched and and it's just a picture of ugliness and brokenness and deep deep need and they don't see it at all he says you think you can be proud of yourself but there's nothing to be proud of you're to be pitied you, you think you're rich, but you're not rich. You're poor. And again, we've got to be careful because all the time in Revelation, we want to look forward to what's coming. But we, before we can understand what's coming, we have to look back and see what's going on before in the Old Testament because Revelation uses the Old Testament more than any other. And in the book of Hosea, the prophet spoke to the, to the people of God in, in Hosea chapter 12, and it was the very same words to them. Let me just flip back over there and read it to you. In Hosea chapter 12, where the, the people of God think that they're, they're well off, they think that they're wealthy. Let me find it here. Hosea chapter 12. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I'm in Hosea 12, 8. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. In all my labors, they cannot find me. They cannot find in me the iniquity or sin. Ephraim, the people of God there, were taking great pride in their wealth that they had amassed for themselves. And they were saying, I'm working hard enough to cover my sin. God says, I'm the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. And I'll take you back and put you in tents again, he says. So it's not new that the people would think that because they have this wealth that they're well off. And Jesus says, you're not rich, you're poor. And you think you are healthy, you think that you have good eyesight, but you're blind, you can't see. And you think that you're well-dressed in the finest black wool that you can make and clothe yourself, but you are naked. You don't see reality. In their swindling of the emperor... The swindlers pretended to take the cloth off the loom. 
They made cuts in the air with their huge scissors. And then they said at last, now the emperor's new clothes are ready for him. The emperor came himself with his noblest nobleman, and the swindlers raised an arm as if they were holding something, and they said, these are the trousers, and here's the coat, and this is the mantle, naming each of the garments. All of them are as light as a spider's web. One would almost think he had nothing on, and that's what makes them so fine, they said. Oh, exactly, all the noblemen agreed. They could see nothing there was because there was nothing to see. If your imperial majesty will condescend to take your clothes off, said the swindlers, we will help you on with your new ones here in front of the long mirror. The emperor undressed and the swindlers pretended to put his new clothes on him, one garment after another. They took him around the waist and seemed to be fastening something. And this was his train as the emperor turned round and round before the looking glass. How well your majesty's new clothes look. Aren't they becoming? He heard that from all sides. Oh, it's perfect. Those colors, they're so suitable. It's a magnificent outfit. And so the story goes on that the emperor goes out and gets in his, gets in his parade and he goes down the street. He went off in his procession, it says, under his splendid canopy. Everyone in the streets and the windows said, oh, how fine the emperor's new clothes look. Don't they fit him to perfection? See his long train. And nobody would confess that they couldn't see anything. <laughs> For what would prove them... For that would prove them either to be unfit for his position or a fool. No costume the emperor had worn had ever been such a complete success. But he hasn't got anything on, a little child exclaimed. Hans Christian Andersen, the emperor's new clothes. What a perfect little parable it is. The people in Laodicea were that same way. Jesus saw them. Unclothed, filthy, tepid, lukewarm, and worthless to his kingdom and his purposes. And yet, here's, here's what's so amazing about this. There's grace. There's grace. I counsel you, he says. Listen to that. This is the Son of God. This is the Sovereign One over all things. This is the King of kings and Lord of lords. God's amen. The true and faithful witness. And he says, let me give you some advice. Can, can I give you some advice, church? That's, that's, that's this gracious tone that we hear from Jesus here. Let me give you some advice. It's the same thing that we see in Isaiah chapter 1. Come, the Lord says, let us reason together. Though your sins be as scarlet, he said, they should be as wool. Though they be crimson, they shall be as white as snow. Come, let's, let's, let's talk through this for a second. I love that. Jesus addresses them and he says, let me give you some advice. And here he's calling for this center of commerce, this church that is commercialized, to do business. Let's make a deal. Let's do some business. Okay? I counsel you. My advice to you is that you buy from me. You're into buying and selling? Buy from me. Okay? Buy from me gold. Buy from me garments. Buy from me salve for your eyes, he says in verse 18. So let's do some business, okay? A little business here, all right? 
First, he says, exchange your poverty for my gold. Well, wait a minute. What kind of currency is that? You think the dollar's being devalued. Jesus says, here's the deal. You bring me your nothing. Your nothingness. And I'll exchange it. You bring me a pocket full of your nothingness. And we'll exchange. You bring me your nothingness. I'll give you my gold. It's, it's, it's the gold of the gospel. It's, it's the treasure that was found, Jesus tells us, that was worth more than anything. Sell everything and get that treasure. It's gold that's been refined in the walk to the cross. In the crucible of Jesus' obedience to his Father. Where he left the glory of heaven and came to this world and took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. It's gold that has been treated and refined in the pressure cooker of the cross. And it is pure. And Jesus says, I'll give you that for your nothingness. Bring your brokenness, bring your spiritual bankruptcy, and I'll make you rich. Secondly, he says, bring me your nothingness, bring me your nakedness, and I'll clothe you. I'll clothe you in my righteousness. White clothes. We, we picture that. We, we kind of give an image of that in, in baptism. Sarah Kelly's wearing the robe. I'm wearing a white shirt. It's not necessary, but I think it's helpful. Because that's a picture for us of what it looks like to be have our sins washed, if you will, and clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And that's what Jesus says. This white is a picture of purity. It's a symbol of his atonement. It's a, pendle, a, a picture of his red blood washing us white. And clean. He perfectly obeyed God's law. We didn't. He did all that God asked him to do. We don't. And he says, take that brokenness and emptiness and bring it to me and I'll clothe you. Thirdly, he says, exchange your destructive blindness for spiritual eyesight. Let me treat your eyes. Remember the picture in the Gospels of Jesus just spitting in the ground, making mud and rubbing it on the eyes of the man. And he went away and washed it and he came back seeing that Jesus says, I'll give you eyesight and you can see what you've never seen before. You'll see your own sin first off and repent of it. You'll see the brokenness of others and cry over it and reach out to do something about it. You'll see the value of the body of Christ and the wealth that I give you in one another and you'll cherish it. You'll see the lostness of people around you and want to do something to reach them. I'll give you eyes to see what you've never seen before. And then he says, notice he says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. So not only are we exchanging our brokenness for his gold and our nakedness for his clothing and our blindness for his eyesight. He gives us the opportunity to exchange our lonely rebellion for his loving discipline. Come, he says, let me discipline you. And this is one of the reasons, I think this is the primary reason why I don't believe this is being addressed to those who are lost. I mean, it's okay that the most famous verse in Revelation probably is, behold, I stand at the door and knock. That's okay. It's okay that the four spiritual laws uses that. That's appropriate. I don't think that's an incorrect image if it's used rightly. But because Jesus says this, I believe he's speaking to his church. Those whom I love, I reprove. Those who are my children, I discipline. As many as I love. And amazingly, Christ loves this good-for-nothing church. He does. He loves them deeply. He shed his blood for them. 
And he says, I rebuke and I discipline those that I love. He corrects those that are his children. Proverbs 3 says that. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father loves, the, excuse me, as the father of the son whom he delights. And the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 12 quotes that and then goes into this. It is for discipline that you have to endure. That's the reason for many of the things that come into our lives. God is treating you as sons, he says. What son is there whom the father does not discipline? And it's this picture of God's loving discipline and our being subject to him and being gracious and willing to receive that discipline. And the writer says, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have trained by it. I don't know. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. I can't imagine that those, those believers in Laodicea sitting there in their comfortable church with this letter being read to them. And Jesus says, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. You think that got a reaction from them? Surely to God it did some of them. Because he's speaking it to them. But his love is never cruel. It's tough. It's tough love. Right? Be zealous, he says. (laughs) Exchange your lukewarm indifference for spiritual fire. That's what burn for crying out loud. And repent. And over and over and over he has said in the letters, repent, repent, repent. Repenting Christians are healthy Christians. And a repenting church is a healthy church. And it's not a one-time event. It's not one time. It's a consistent, constant characteristic. It's the fruit of life in Christ. It's a picture of his love for us. And look at what concludes this passage. Here's the sovereign of the universe offering for offering restored fellowship and a, and a sweet, sweet, intimate relationship with his people. Behold, it says in verse 20, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I have also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That's been my prayer constantly and consistently over the course of this series as we've gone through this. Lord, he who has an ear, let him hear. Starting with me. Take the wax out of this stubborn boy's ears and let me hear. And it's a fitting end. I actually thought about maybe just stopping here and and finishing with a sermon just on this passage of Scripture because it is for all of those churches. It is for all of those letters. And it is for all time for us. That's, That's its invitation. And the faithful and true witness who we'll see later on in Revelation 22 on a white horse coming with all power and authority is faithful and true now just humbly knocking at the door of your heart. Maybe looking through the window. He sees and he knows. And there's this picture and I know there's the debate, just like there is about what he means by cold. There's a picture here. You know, is he, is he addressing a local church or is he re- addressing individual believers? Well, I think it's both. I don't think it's either or here. I think it's both. Here's the sovereign who created all things standing at the door. He opens and shuts doors. We just saw, right, in Philadelphia? The door he opens, no one can shut. The door he closes, no one can open. And yet here he is, 
just standing at the door knocking. He's asking and waiting, offering and inviting. And, and what is it he's waiting for? Well, he's waiting for the work, I believe, first off of the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit is the one who opens our ears so we can even hear the knock. And then he's waiting for us to respond in faith. And that faith says yes. Faith opens that door. Faith opens that door to him who is waiting to come in and do a work that we can't imagine. So faith opens the door and, and there's a desire for Christ there that there never was before. And to have him come in and live within us and come in and restore what was lost and broken, what's been compromised, what's become complacent. That's that's he's offering this. And notice he says he's inviting us to heavenly hospitality. Heavenly hospitality, a place at the family table in the eastern in the eastern cultures, hospitality to be invited into someone's home and to sit there at their table. There's no greater honor. There's no greater picture of welcoming than to bring you in and let you sit at the table. And Jesus uses this image here of feasting, and it seems to be redundant. He, he says it two different ways. I will come in and eat with him and he will eat with me also. It's just this picture of the intimacy that Jesus desires. That's what Jesus wants with us. He wants to bring us in and welcome us to his table. I get this picture every time I think about that, of David being faithful to, to Mephibosheth. And this picture of this crippled walk, I can hear his foot sliding down the hallway there in the palace, coming to the place at the table that King David has for him. He, by all rights of culture, should be dead because he's a descendant of the previous king. And David welcomes him at the table. And what's the reward? Starting in the next chapter, in chapter 4, we're going, to be, we're going to see the throne room of God as we've never seen it before. And 35 times, maybe more depending on how we count, you'll see the throne of God referenced in the book of Revelation. It's, it's the big deal, okay? The throne of God. And what seems to be there and then at the end is here and now. As the, as the residence place of God has taken up here at the new, new heavens and new earth. And the throne of God is the water of life. The river of the water of life, it says in Revelation 22, flows out from it. And, and there's nothing accursed there before the throne of God. And Jesus is inviting us not only to his table, but to his throne. Do you see that? To him who overcomes, I'll give the right to sit with me on my throne just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who overcomes and fights the good fight, he who walks the walk, the way of the cross like I did, will receive this reward. It's the overcomer every time in the book of Revelation in these letters. To him who overcomes, to him who endures, to him who makes it to the end, to him who holds fast to Christ as Christ holds fast to him. And that's the picture all the way through the book of Revelation. Him who overcomes fights the fight of faith in this world. You don't compromise. You don't give in to the flesh. You don't give in to the devil. And when we do, which we will, we repent of it and come back to Christ. And he receives us and forgives us and brings us in again. What a picture that is. And so all of these summarize everything that's gone on in the book of Revelation, in these, in these letters in chapter 2 and 3. The tree of life, the crown of life. The new name, a white stone given to us with our name on it. This picture that's given to us that we're going to sit in authority with Christ and rule the nations. We'll get the morning star. We'll get white garments of righteousness. We'll have the honor of Jesus naming our name before God the Father and all the angels. 
Wow. And all of this is through him who overcame. A lot of things are going to get crushed in the book of Revelation. Those who rebel against Jesus will be crushed. Those who would say that there's this some kind of prosperity gospel will be crushed. And those who say that it's easy to follow Jesus, that gets crushed too. It's the way of the cross. It's the way of suffering. And it's the way he conquered. And it's the same way we do. So let me just give you a quick couple of things. I've already touched on this before. But if you're here today and you've never trusted Jesus, I I believe with all my heart that because you're here right now, and unless you're reading your phone or unless you're doing something else completely different, you, by God's grace, are hearing a knock. And whether it's in person here, whether it's the streaming, or whether you pull it up later and listen to it. If, if, if me or anyone else is standing up here, as best as we can and as God enables us to faithfully proclaim his word, then you are hearing from God. You're not just hearing from me. And if you're hearing that, that's the knock. Did you hear Sarah Kelly's testimony? At what, t- what time was it? Dear, for what? That, boy, that, by the way, wasn't in that first copy of that you shared with me. You didn't have the time in that. 448? I, God called me. He knocked. And that knocking had been going on for a long time through the voice of mom and dad and, and, and teachers and leaders in church, through other believers speaking into her life. That's the knock, too. But at some point in time... That knock is one that we don't ignore. Because God moves our hand to open it by faith. And then he graciously comes in. And unbeliever, if he offers you more than this world could ever offer you, you're not rich apart from Christ. Before his eyes, you're naked in your sin. You don't look very good. And you can't see it. Until he opens the eyes of your heart to see it. So let him do that. Eternity hangs in the balance. It's a big deal. And to the church, we should come back every day and read just the first verses of these letters to the churches and consider Jesus. We need to be careful not to lose our first love like they did in Ephesus. Our eyes set on Jesus will prevent that from happening. We need to be careful that we don't get discouraged and give up in the middle of suffering. Our eyes fixed on Jesus will allow us to continue and persevere like they did in Smyrna. We need to be careful to keep our eyes on Jesus so we don't compromise doctrinally like they did in Pergamon. Or that we don't compromise morally like they did in Thyatira. Or that we don't just be declared spiritually dead like they were in Sardis. If we keep our eyes on Jesus, we're going to be bold to go through those doors that he opens that no one else can open. And be protected behind those that he shuts that no one else can shut like they were in Philadelphia. And if we keep our eyes fixed on the one who is the amen, the faithful and true, the one who is the firstborn sovereign first over the recreation that God is doing through the resurrection, then there won't be any lukewarmness. It won't happen. And only when we see Jesus for who he is are we able to hear him the way we should. 
Just like Isaiah said, this is the one I esteem. He who is humble and contrite in heart and who trembles at my word. God help us tremble. Let's pray. And Lord, we pray that before your word this morning. We pray that your Holy Spirit would take it and just burn it into our hearts. I thank you for these letters. Jesus, thank you for being among us, for speaking to us, for loving us enough to point it out. (laughs) I need that, and we all do. So I pray that this church, God, starting with one person, could bear the fruit of repentance. The revival, Lord, would pour down and break out. Whatever terminology we need to use, Jesus, we pray for that. We pray for the lost to be saved. May they hear your knock. Come in, Lord, to that heart and give them new life today. Father, we thank you again for for Sarah Kelly. We thank you for her testimony. We thank you for her faith. We thank you, Lord, for the gift of that faith. We thank you, Lord, that her and others, God, um, seek to walk with you in the light of that new life that they have in Christ. And, Lord, we pray for that in each one of our hearts and in our lives, Lord. All this we give you thanks for, and we do it in Jesus' name. Amen.